uh, if you would remain standing and grab your Bibles, we're going to be heading right back to where we've been for several weeks. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's one that's been provided for you in the seat in front of you. And in those blue Bibles, we're going to be on page 35, and uh, we're continuing to look at the Ten Commandments in a series and trying to discover not just what the Ten Commandments say. Most of us at least have a a somewhat of an understanding of that, but we want to understand how we as believers on this side of the covenants, um, how we approach those. So let's let's get back into that. So Exodus uh, chapter 20, we're going to begin with verse 1, and these, this is what we read. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who, keep, who love me and who keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. (coughs) So last week we talked about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And we talked about how it was the beginning of five commandments that govern, uh, that God has given to to specifically govern our interactions with other people. And we talked about how the, uh, the, the first three commandments deal with, or the first four commandments rather, deal with how we relate to God. The fifth commandment is, is transitional. And then these last five are going to specifically deal with how we interact, how we relate to other people. And it makes sense, we said last week, that this commandment, that thou shalt not murder, you shall not murder, would be first since God is the giver and the taker of life. And he alone reserves that role for himself. He describes himself in scripture as the God of the living. We're also forbidden to murder because all humanity is created in the image of God. And this makes murder extremely abhorrent, not only to God, but to ourselves as well. And according to Jesus, we, we talked about this at length last week, according to Jesus, God's prohibition of murder actually extends to our hateful, heart-level thoughts, our words, and our actions as well. So the seventh commandment, Where we arrive today, you shall not commit adultery. In a way, it kind of tightens the focus. 
Though it definitely applies to all humanity, it emphasizes our relationship with those to whom we are in the closest covenant. The way we obey or the way we ignore this commandment has major ramifications. It it will result in either the stabilizing or the destabilizing of the society that we all share. For example, right now in America, sexual expression, which was given as a gift by God to be enjoyed in the safe confines of a one-man, one-woman marriage covenant, is now viewed by many people as central to our identity in every single way. But many of these sexual identities that we embrace, they place a value on sex and sexual activity that is way too high, and it's devoid of any real context. And in many instances, it includes perverse and self-destructive practices for those that are, in fact, practicing them. Rather, instead of living in a, in a, in a creation where our identity is, is strictly governed by our sexuality, we were designed by God to find our identity in the fact that we were created by Him. We find our identity that we were created by Him for His glory, and even more so as the redeemed of Christ. We were never meant to be identified by our various sexual preferences and orientations, but by the fact that we were fashioned male and female in the image of God. But God's answer to all of this was to command his people, you shall not commit adultery. Now that may seem odd at first glance. Why? Because adultery, as it is strictly defined, only denotes one particular specific type of sexual sin the violation of the sexual covenant of uh, the marriage the the sexual covenant of marriage with someone who's not your spouse that is technically the definition of what adultery is so does this imply that we're free to engage in all other sexual activities as long as they don't violate the spousal covenant what would that mean for activities such as viewing pornography or homosexual behavior etc and in the light of the supreme court's 2015 Overfell landmark decision, who gets to define who is our spouse in the first place? Well, this morning, I'm going to contend pretty strongly and hopefully prove that the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, includes all the things that the Bible defines as sexually immoral. And more than that, way more than that, astronomically more than that, what I want to do is I want to emphasize the gospel-centered why behind the commandment. The Bible is really clear that the rules, the letter, simply kill. And you know why they do? Because that's what they were designed to do. I I said this morning in our prayer that, that the law, the commandment, was uh, is a cop shining its light through the window of your soul and seeing what is in your ashtray. That's what the law does. That's what it was designed for. It was designed to, to point out our sin, to condemn us in our sin, so that, and this so that is really important, so that we would turn and look to Christ for salvation. Because can I tell you something? You will not find salvation in the law. You will not find it. You will only find a guilty verdict and a death sentence. That's all you'll find in the law. 
But what the law does is it makes us realize our depravity and our helplessness, and, and we turn to the only one that can save us. The book of Romans talks about this a lot. So I, I want to not just tell you what the Bible says is naughty or immoral or bad. I want to tell you the why behind the commandment. My desire this morning is that you'll see clearly that God's way is better than your own way. And it's better than anyone else's way. It's better than what society says is better. And that it alone leads to life to those who hear and obey. So to understand the all-encompassing nature of the meaning of adultery in this commandment, the best place for us to look, similar to what we did last week, is to look at Jesus' own words on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to go real close to where we were last week. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 27. And here is what Jesus says. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching to a bunch of people on the hillside. And here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, where? In the law. That's where they heard it. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. We heard that this morning. But I say to you, this is a really important phrase when Jesus uses it. Because he is assuming the authority and the role that he has as being the one who has both given the law and has the right to interpret it. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What he is saying is under the standard reading of the law, that you could lust after whoever you wanted in whatever depraved way you wanted as long as you never jumped into bed with anybody. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I say. He's saying that your lustful intent is the same as your adultery. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. If your right eye, this is one of the most troubling, severe things that Christ ever said. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off throw it away for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell that's pretty tough isn't it so this morning we'll be handing out meat cleavers if anybody needs to be more obedient to scripture well, just like he did with the commandment about murder, Jesus uses this holy authority as the giver and the holy interpreter of the law to expand the application of this commandment. This is the bottom line. One cannot claim righteousness on the basis that they've never slipped between the sheets with another person's spouse. Jesus says to us here that a lingering gaze and the thoughts that you entertain are enough to condemn you to hell. These are Jesus' words. I'm not saying this is some hellfire and brimstone pulpit pounder. These are Jesus' words. 
Again, the issue, just like with murder, is not the adulterous act, but the wicked heart at the base of the adulterous act. Don't miss that the context for Jesus' imagery of gouging out our eyes and, and, and tearing off our hands and how he says that our eyes and hands cause us to sin, that the, 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 the context of that is lust and adultery of the heart. It's graphic. And it doesn't take some seminary-trained Bible scholar to see what he's referring to and what he's prohibiting. His answer is shocking. Tear out your eye. Cut off your hand. Whatever is required to keep your soul out of the danger of hell. This absolutely corresponds to the Old Testament, what Solomon taught his son in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. It's a little bit of a long passage, but please stay with me. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Watch this, verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Isn't that a vivid image? For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught... He will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Does Jesus have your attention this morning? Notice that Solomon starts where Jesus does when he says, do not desire her her beauty. Where? In your heart. Desire not only often leads to the act, but Jesus actually equates the desire and the act, making one as heinous as the other. Solomon also points out the terrible consequences of sexual sin, using words like burned and scorched and punished. He says the offender will pay sevenfold and give all the goods of his house. He destroys himself, suffering wounds and dishonor and disgrace that will never be wiped away. Well, shoot, sign me up. All of this serves as a warning to those who would defend acts like we mentioned earlier viewing pornography or engaging in a lustful fantasy life, and you just say, well, that's just a victimless crime. No! The same penalties Jesus says that apply to adultery with your body also apply to adultery in your mind. But the Bible also teaches that all sexual sin is adultery because, here's the, the thinking behind this, The marriage bed of one man and one woman is the only place where our God-given sexuality has been blessed and has been sanctioned by God to be expressed. That's the only place, the only circumstances, the only way. Genesis 2.24 is the basis for this belief. 
It says, therefore, a man, a man, single male, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular female, and they shall become one flesh. If there are any doubts about what is meant in Genesis, if you find any vagary in that whatsoever, no less than Jesus himself clarifies the language when he quotes this verse to his opponents in Matthew 19. Here's what we read, Matthew 19, 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus did not see a possibility for 27 different genders. He just didn't. I'm not trying to be unkind or hyper-religious. I'm just telling you it's not there. Jesus said that they were created male and female. And he said, that Jesus speaking here, he said, and he said, the, the, speaking of the father, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is saying that marriage is rooted in the fact that God created all of humanity, male and female, so that when they come together, this isn't rocket science, when they come together, they might be physically, emotionally, and intellectually complementary to each other. Amen? It only works. And this eliminates the possibility of God's blessing resting on homosexual unions or on any other aberration of this monogamous heterosexual design straight from God. But Jesus also clarifies further, instead of saying, as it does in Genesis, they shall become one flesh, he and Paul later actually in Ephesians chapter 5 stated as the two shall become one flesh. Also stating that they are no longer one Uh, They are no longer two, but one flesh. God's desire for us is to spend our days in covenant sexual relationship with one other person of the opposite sex. I don't know how this could be any more clear in Scripture. I can imagine, however, on a point that doesn't come up too much in our culture in these days, I can imagine that some of you might be protesting, saying, well, come on, Mark. One man, one woman? What about Abraham? What about Jacob? What about David? What about Solomon? These are all Bible heroes who had multiple wives. Solomon, a thousand of them. That sounds like a massive headache to me. I love my wife. I love my wife, but it took her 26 years to train me. I would not want to go through that process all over again with 999 other women. It was hard work for her. Y'all should pray for her. So what happened? Why do all these guys, Abraham's a friend of God, David's a man after God's own heart, all of them multiple wives. What happened? Did God change his mind about what was right? Did something happen in the covenants? No. I want to point out two things. I don't have time this morning. So I'm going to let you study them out on your own time. If I'm wrong, come back and see me. I'll own it. Two things I want to point out to you. First, nowhere in Scripture does God encourage a man to take multiple wives. Not one place. Jesus said, and we just read it, that God's monogamous intention was, quote, from the beginning. Although polygamy 
uh, was rampant in the ancient world. It was an expression of fallenness, not holiness. And it proves that the people that God chose, this should make you feel real good. They were just as stinking flawed as you and I are. Just as broken, just as messed up as you are. And that ought to give you a lot of hope with what God can work with. Second, so that's the first point. God never endorsed it, uh, sanctioned it. Second, there's, only, there's not one central poly, uh, polygamous character, not one, in all of the Bible who didn't suffer in one form or another, husbands and wives, for their departure from God's perfect plan for their sexual happiness. Do you know that? Think about it for just a second. Hagar, Abraham's second wife, she was miserable. And because she was miserable, Abraham and Sarah were pretty miserable too. David wreaked all kinds of havoc in his house because of the multiple wives he took. And and Solomon actually had his heart turned away from the one true God by all of his wives. It was never a source of blessing for these people. Now, so if you're here today and you have 17 wives, we got to talk. I think we're probably okay, but just wanted to make that point. That that idea of of the this you know this being outside of God's will, this polygamy being outside of God's will, and and how that it uh, how that it wasn't God's best is really the point of this commandment. It really is. I want you to understand something. Some of you may be new to Christianity. Maybe some of you aren't even Christians yet. And you have this idea of the rigid, puritanical, you know, uh, asexual Christian. Well, I want to blow your mind, hopefully, if you believe me. God's design, as he designed it for our sex lives, is only for our flourishing. Man, did you all hear that pen drop? It's for your flourishing. God is not trying to wreck anybody's party. In fact, he's trying to give you the best party possible. It's for your flourishing. If you do a quick Google search on recent polls conducted, it will quickly confirm for you that without a doubt, this has been tested over and over in thousands of polls, thousands of things, that the most satisfying sex lives belong to those who are married. Hey, what about the swinging party guy, the, the college guy that's out with a new woman every night? Mm-mm. Statistics show, polling shows, data shows that he's miserable. He's miserable. You know who's happy? And you know who's, if I may be so blunt, you know who's happiest in bed? The married guy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'll give you that. If I, if I would come down and give you a high five for that. So. I, and I've never seen such a beautiful shade of red as is on your face, a wife's face right now. So gorgeous i don't think that got picked up on the tape so i'm just gonna say glenn polk said he has the best sex life in all of i want that preserved for the record so anyway they do say they do say that that tremendous sexual experiences can have a negative effect on your memory i don't know if you ever heard that but what was i saying Anyway, a quick Google search will confirm that the most satisfying sex lives belong to those who are married. And and even more so, this is absolutely true, proven, documented, even more so if that couple, in the terms of the poll, is religious. That's interesting, isn't it? 
Very interesting. You know, I don't want to blow your you know, mind or burst your bubble, but I think Hollywood may be getting it wrong. You think? God is not, in the words of Josh McDowell, a cosmic killjoy. He's not. He doesn't want to restrict your pleasure in any way, even sexually. Guess what? He wants to maximize it. He's not trying to hold you back. He's trying to set you free. If you grew up with the mindset that I mentioned earlier, that God's just some frowning old cop in the sky scanning the horizon to see who he could write the next ticket to, if he wants to just write tickets to anyone who would dare enjoy anything, you need a much better understanding of who this God we serve really is. Because that's not who he is. That's not God at all. A quick survey, again, of the Song of Songs there in the Old Testament books of poetry will prove that he delights in, in, in giving the sexual pleasure of his creation. He, he delights in it. He's obviously, obviously the one. This is a basic thing we believe as, as Christians. He's obviously the one that created the human body. Do you agree with that? Then he must have created it. To experience all the glorious sensations that our sexuality affords. But he's also the God. That's not giving you something to say, oh, all right, I'm, I'm, I'll, go, I'll go experience those sensations. No, listen to me. He's also the God that because he loves you so much, designed specifications for sexuality safe use so that not one of his followers, not one of the people he loves so much is wounded by it. That's not that's the last thing he wants. So in my garage right now, I have a chainsaw and I have a lawnmower. Y'all got scared because I was talking about cutting off hands and I said, I got a chainsaw. No, no, no. In my garage I have a chainsaw and I have a lawnmower. Both of them, each one of them, serves a wonderful purpose. They help me do my work, they help me enjoy my property. In fact, they actually decrease my work. I can't imagine you know, being out there mowing my lawn with some sith or, you know, something like that. It's not, it's not, that's not how it, they're designed to work. They, they, they help me. However, these two very helpful tools are not in any way interchangeable. Think about that. They, I can't do with one what I do with the others. One cuts limbs very well and the other one cuts grass. I know this because, thankfully, the manufacturer graciously included a written guide detailing the specifications for each of them for me when I bought them. There's a little booklet in there. It tells me everything they're supposed to do, you know, everything about them. told me all I needed to know about the safe operation and the maintenance of each one of them so they last a long time and I would get the maximum use out of them. But listen to me carefully. If I don't read those instructions, if I say, hey, they're both sharp, I'll just cut limbs with the lawnmower and grass with the chainsaw. Guess what? Most likely someone's getting hurt. Most likely it's going to be me. Even more than that, that equipment is not going to function very well, if at all. And I can almost guarantee that eventually it's going to break. Right? Fair enough? See, human sexuality is a lot like that. If we think that the pleasure it provides is interchangeable for all contexts, for all relationships, for all desires. 
not only will it not work as it was designed to do, failing to provide the pleasure, the security, and satisfaction that it was designed to bring, but people are going to get hurt. That's a wide range of hurt. Some will be disappointed. Some of them will feel abandoned or rejected. Some of them will experience bouts of terrible, deep, echoing loneliness. Some of them, it'll go so much further. It'll lead to divorce. So many cases of STDs. So many people that might even die because of their disregard of this commandment. It never, ever, ever pays to ignore the manufacturer's safety and maintenance specifications for the full enjoyment of your human sexuality. It just doesn't pay. Someone's going to get hurt. This, the good thing is that the manufacturer has been gracious enough to leave us a copy of those specifications. Isn't that nice of him? Right here. All of his specifications have been written down for you. Proverbs 6.23. We read this earlier, but you may have missed what it said. Right at the beginning, the most important key part of that scripture is not don't do this. But here's the most important part. He introduces it by saying, for the commandment is a lamp. The teaching of that commandment is a light. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Listen carefully. To ignore God's instructions for sexuality is to choose darkness over light. It's to choose death more than life. It's to prefer destruction over our own preservation. But on the other hand, to embrace the design of God is to embrace joy, to embrace peace, to embrace life and pleasure in its truest, most undiluted form. Not a quick thrill, but a lasting, dare I say even, eternal joy. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. That's what the commandment is doing here. That's what, the, that's what the instruction, the teaching, the reproofs are doing. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. If you have fullness, how much more room do you have for more? None. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. Now watch this next part. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is not just describing some mystical, you know, Holy Spirit doodad, you know, religious pleasure. But it's pleasure in its most broad sense imaginable. God wants you to enjoy life to the He said, I have come that they might have life and have it how? More abundantly. The only way to do this is to completely submit to his truth and his lordship. Listen, if you want to be really free, you have to be the slave of Jesus Christ. 
You cannot be free in the sense that you're running around like some sort of feral animal out there doing exactly what you want to do when you want to do. There's no freedom in that. Freedom comes from being the slave of Jesus Christ. Over this series, I've done my best, I said this earlier, to not just explain whatever commandment we were discussing, but to tell you why it matters to believers in Christ under this new covenant that Jesus established on the cross with his death and resurrection. I want to continue to do that today. Did you know that for us, listen carefully, you probably have never thought of it like this. Did you know that for us, you shall not commit adultery is so much more than a prohibition. It's actually a promise. Think about that. Wrap your brain around that. It's not just a prohibition, it's a promise. You've understood, or you have to understand, that in the Bible, God always looks at his people. Old covenant, new covenant, he always looks at his people as a bride. It's all over the scriptures. You can't miss it. Not just as his adherents or his followers. He, didn't, he, he looks at them as much more tenderly than that, as his bride. Seen several times, several different ways, both the Old and New Testament. But because of this, whenever... God's people were unfaithful in the Old Testament. God would equate their unfaithfulness with words like whoredom and adultery against an innocent, faithful husband. This is especially seen in the book of Hosea, where spiritual spiritual adultery against a faithful covenant-keeping God is the central theme. In chapter 2 particularly, God proclaims his love, his his provision, rather, and his protection that was lavished upon Israel, only to be thrown back in his face as the people cried out for idols to love, for their idols' protection and idols' provision. It was, in the truest form, spiritual adultery. They had abandoned their faithful husband, God, and ran to other lovers. See, God hates adultery. God commands strongly against adultery because he himself has been the victim of it. He's seen his beloved bride act like a common street whore in the very face of his mercy. But good news, in the New Testament, things change a little bit. See, God still calls his people, in this case the church, his bride, but he rarely mentions spiritual adultery as a problem or even a possibility. Why is that? It's because, unlike under the Old Covenant, our, well, not, that's not exactly right. The, the salvation works the same way Old Covenant New Covenant, but because the gospel has been revealed, our purity, our righteousness, it's not secured by our good behavior. Everybody take a deep sigh of relief and say, Thank God. Your righteousness does not depend on the work that you do. Your purity, your righteousness isn't secured by your own good behavior, but it has been secured by the work of Christ and irrevocably applied to your spirit if you believe by the Holy Spirit. He has made us righteous. He's made us the untarnished bride of Christ. Paul describes this so beautifully In Ephesians 5, as he's given instructions to husbands and wives how to relate to each other, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And his emphasis there is on as Christ loved the church. He's going to tell us how he did that. 
He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That means purify, cleanse her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Man, the work of Jesus prepared you as a bride in your flowing, beautiful, radiant wedding garments so Jesus can just stand back and observe your beauty. I say that this morning. And I know that there's probably a large percentage of you say, man, that's great for him or her, but not me. Mm-mm. I'm no spotless bride. If you're a believer and you say that, you do not understand the gospel that saved you. Because the gospel that saved you made your righteousness a non-factor. You are beautified by the glory of the risen Christ and his righteousness, not your own. Not your own. Because of the sanctifying work of Jesus, we are as righteous as Jesus himself in God's sight. Why? Because we have his righteousness. And how righteous is Jesus? How, have you ever asked that question? How righteous is Jesus? How faithful of a husband is Jesus? How righteous is Jesus as our husband? We know from Scripture, Hebrews 13, He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us or betray us. He'll never be unfaithful to us in any way. He will always defend and always protect us. He'll provide for us. He'll comfort and encourage us. And you can count on that. Therefore, You shall not commit adultery as a promise. It reminds us of what God will never do to you or I, his bride, always faithful. Because of this, we can live lives. We can live lives, no matter what you've told yourself, in late night sessions in front of a TV, in front of a computer screen, you can live a life of both physical and spiritual purity. You can do it because the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to bring life to your mortal body. He's able to do it for you and in you. You can live lives of physical and spiritual purity, standing in the righteousness that you did not earn, the righteousness that has been imputed to you, faithful to a husband God who is always going to be faithful to you. So remember... As a believer, I said it already, Hebrews 13, the Bible says that God will never leave you or forsake you. Matthew 28, he's with you always, even to the end of the age. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he remains faithful even when we are faithless. And Philippians says he will supply all of your needs. Jeremiah says he has loved you with an everlasting love. And so my final question to you, the bride of Christ, what more could you ask for in a husband? What more could you ask for in a husband? Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for your devotion, your faithfulness, your tenderness towards us, your provision, your protection. Lord, we thank you that you have found us in our filth, in our rottenness, in our adultery, in our whoredom, Lord God, and you brought us into your home. And you took us as we were and you cleansed us with the washing of the water of the the word. You've made us spotless without wrinkle. And now we are set before you so that you might enjoy the beauty of your bride. And we thank you for that, Lord. There's not a single person in here who rightly thinks that they earned or deserve any of that. And so we thank you. We have nothing to do but to thank you for it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God, to reflect that commitment to us with our own commitment to wholeness and sexual purity. Every one of us is broken and every one of us is broken sexually. And so, God, I pray that you would would call us back to purity and holiness, not in our own white-knuckled effort, but in our own complete trust in you, Lord God. God, be better to us than what we see on the Internet. Be better to us than that man or that woman at work that makes us feel something, God, emotionally that is leading somewhere dangerous. God, be better to us than our own, uh, God, pursuits of, of of satisfaction in sex that, that you don't condone or, or ordain. God, draw us back to our spouses. For those who are a single among us, God, be their spouse. Keep us holy, Lord God, so that we might enjoy, not so that we can be restricted, but so that we might enjoy this covenant in which you have fully devoted to us. God, if there are those here that need real help to get free, in their sex life, Lord God, and in, in their sexual thought life, Lord God, their their activities, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to humble ourselves, Lord God, and realize that that in our struggles, we're not alone, God. We're not the only one in the room by any stretch, Lord. And so help us, Lord God, to seek out help, the trusted brother or sister that we can we can share with and, and find the freedom that you already died to purchase for us. We thank you for that, Lord God. We love you. Bless your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.